You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, when or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Just want to say welcome into Packers Total Access. I'm your host, Clayton Bailey. You can check us out on Packernet.com. You can find me on Twitter at Packers underscore access. If you have a question for the show, um, comment, or just some feedback, you know, you can hit us up at uh, the email address is Packers Total Access at gmail.com, and we will respond to those uh, pretty quickly. We've we've done a great job keeping up with those emails from our listeners, and it's been a great, great tool uh, to uh, to just kind of keep uh, good communication with the with the guys and gals that are tuning in and, and listening to our content. So on tap today, guys, we uh, we're going to cover several different things. First of all, we've got a history segment for you, and it's it's more of a uh, um, uh, somewhat of a biography, I guess you could say. Right? We're going to talk about one of the men that are most responsible for the strength of the Green Bay Packers organization today from a business standpoint, and that's Mr. Bob Harlan. If you guys uh, don't know who Bob Harlan is, you may be a, a, a you know much younger fan, and you probably uh, have not heard the name, but he is someone that's just been absolutely vital to uh, to the Green Bay Packers' success here in the last couple of decades at least, even further back to be, to be completely honest. So we're going to cover Bob Harlan. And then we've got a listener question uh, through the Facebook page um, on uh, Eric Stokes. So we're going to hit on that. And then we've got some news and notes that we're going to touch on uh, before we get out of here. Might be a little bit shorter of a show today. Um, not a whole lot going on. But as you guys know, we kicked off our, our new series um, last Sunday where we were uh, starting to do a recap of last season and kind of get a quick refresher for everybody as we step into you know the new uh, the new training camp season here. So uh, we're going to continue that on Sunday. But today, like I said, a little bit slow uh, news cycle, but we've got some good stuff that we're going to cover for you. I think you guys will be interested in the email que- or the uh, Facebook uh, post question there. Uh, from a fan, from a listener. I know it's something that I really enjoyed digging into, and we're going to talk about all that. And, and that really that question was around Eric Stokes and how he compares to Jair Alexander. And then, like I said, we'll get into some news and notes. So let's just jump right into um, Bob Harlan. And like I said, you know, most people probably know who Bob Harlan is. Um, he is someone that, as I became a Packer fan back in 2003, he was already on the scene doing great things. And uh, as soon as I learned who Bob Harlan was, I realized just how important he was to the Green Bay Packers. And um, he's just someone that's really, really passionate about uh, about the organization. And, you know, as you guys know, um, the Green Bay Packers does not have an owner. We, we do not have an owner. Uh, we have a chairman, or uh, I'm sorry, a, a board 
of directors, and then you have one individual that kind of acts as the leader of that board of directors, and um, that's that's typically kind of your quote acting owner. And as you guys know right now, that is Mark Murphy. And for those of you who don't know, um, Bob Harlan was responsible for appointing Mark Murphy after some uh, some other plans fell through. And um, yes, so I think personally that Mark Murphy's done an excellent job. But Bob Har- Bob Harlan, the the foundation that he laid into place was awesome. So let's just talk about Bob Harlan. His name is Robert E. Harlan, born on September 9th, 1936. He is the former chairman of the board and chief, ex- chief executive officer of the Green Bay Packers, uh, an American pro- professional football league. He's a graduate of Marquette University, where he has the sports information. Di- he was the sports information director for many years. He is also the father of sports announcer uh, Kevin Harlan. You guys have heard Kevin Harlan's voice, I'm sure, calls a lot of NBA action. But if he's still doing it, uh, I know he called the Green Bay Packers preseason along with Rich Gannon. Uh, for the longest time. I think he's currently still doing that, but that's actually Bob Harlan's son. So um, his time with the Green Bay Packers, it says Bob Harlan started his career with the Green Bay Packers in 1971 as an assistant general manager. Over the next 18 years, he was promoted three times, first as corporate general, general manager in 1975, then as assistant to the president in 1981. That makes me think of Michael Scott, right? Assistant to the regional manager, but anyway. Uh, and finally, as executive vice president of administration in 1988. On June 5th, 1989, he was elected as the ninth president of the Packers after the resignation of former president Robert J. Parnins. I think I'm saying that's right, that right. Harlan would go on to serve as president for 18 seasons until 2008. His tenure was marked with some of the, with quote, some of the largest moves in franchise history and made him one of the most influential and successful presidents in franchise history. Bob Harlan is credited with keeping the Packers competitive in the era of free agency and the salary cap and for creating the foundation for the Packers' 12th world championship in Super Bowl 31. Uh, among Harlan's most notable accomplishments are building the Don Hudson Center, the first indoor practice facility in professional football. I want you to think about that. Of all the billionaire owners, of all uh, all the money that churns through this huge business that is the National Football League, the Green Bay Packers had the very first indoor facility in professional football, and it's all because of Bob Harlan. That was a vision he had. We know what the winners are like uh, in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he understood that there was going to be sometimes that certain things need to be practiced that the elements might not allow a team to practice. You know, especially when you're going into a dome setting, it's one thing to want to practice outside because you've got a cold weather game coming up and you want to kind of get acclimated to the weather. But if you've got a dome game coming up, it makes all the sense in the world, in my opinion, to practice indoors and kind of get used to that element of it also allows them to pop in way louder music, things like that. So he was responsible for building the Don Hudson Center, which we all know is named after the great wide receiver Don Hudson. Uh, he's also responsible for the decision to move all home games to Lambeau Field, creating season ticket packages for the Milwaukee fans who had previously attended three games a season at Milwaukee County Stadium. So as you guys know, uh, Milwaukee was very, very important, very vital to the uh, the survival of the Green Bay Packers, and for the longest time, Bob Harlan did. Uh, you know, he understood that when you revamp Lambeau Field, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, he wanted every home game at Lambeau Field because that meant maximum profit, right? 
And uh, it's it's funny that this gets brought up because we had a listener email in and say, hey, what do you think about you know the Packers playing a game every every five every ten years uh, in Milwaukee? Just you know anything to kind of to kind of play there. And, I, and I'm all, totally on board with it, but. You start to understand that the reason the Packers moved all the games to Lambeau was because they knew they could maximize profit and began to turn Lambeau Field into this year-round destination. And that's all I've ever known Lambeau Field as. I see some of the old pictures of Lambeau Field. I say old, but, you know, even in the 90s. And it's just this stadium sitting out in the middle of nowhere, right? And, I mean, it's literally just the stadium. Um you know, when I became a Packers fan in 2003, Bob Harlan had already done stock drives to build Lambeau Field up and build what they call the Lambeau Field Atrium, which allowed them to turn that into a year-round destination. So um, that was all Bob Harlan's doing, obviously. So renovating Lambeau Field into the state of, state-of-the-art facility with increased game day capacity and a year-round atrium housing restaurants, the Packer Pro Shop, and the Packers Hall of Fame. So I just mentioned that. You basically take this stadium and say, you know what? Yes, it is a a huge money, a huge income, revenue creator, right, on game day. But what if we made it a year-round destination? You know, the thing that drew me to the Green Bay Packers and becoming a Packers fan was the fact that all you ever heard about was the historic Lambeau Field. And I kept hearing that over and over. And some of you guys have heard me tell this story I was a college football fan at the time. I didn't have a favorite pro team. I kind of pulled for the Steelers because my brother, who was in and out of the military, um, when he was home, that was his favorite team. He grew up in the 70s. He's quite a bit older than I am. And uh, he kind of, you know, injected that Steelers love into me there uh, at, a, at an early age and, and would bring me, you know, some, you know, Cordell Stewart jersey and things like that, right? He was he was definitely trying to <laughs> trying to push the Steelers on to me, and he, and he did a good job with that. But I was more of a college football fan. And around 2003, you know, I kept hearing, you know, uh, you know, the legend of Lambeau Field and the history of the Green Bay Packers and all this, and I, I just so happened to stop into uh, a Best Buy I was on a, a long lunch break for work, and at the time I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee, and and I go into Best Buy, and I always went straight to the sports DVDs. You know that back in the day they had a huge sports DVD selection, and I walk by, and I see this shiny green box, and it was a two disc set, and it was the history of the Green Bay Packers and the Ice Bowl on one DVD. You know, was the Ice Bowl, and on the other was the history of the Green Bay Packers. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna buy this and see what all the hoopla is about. So I bought that, and that was in the summer of 2003. I bought that DVD, went home, watched it, you know, after work, and I was like, I remember messaging or calling my, you know, at the time she was my girlfriend, but now she's my my wife, uh, Mandy, and I said, hey, look, uh, I've got to see this place that they're talking about, this this Lambeau Field, and, and you know, we've always loved football. That was one of the things that kind of, uh, you know, attracted us to each other. Was she was a, a cheerleader in high school. And, uh, and absolutely love football. Just to give you an idea, the first time I ever, uh, quote-unquote, I guess you could say, went on a date with my wife, it's the coolest story. I, I go over, she invites me over to her parents' house to meet her parents and everything. I walk in, and her mother's there in the kitchen, you know, where I entered, and I was, you know, introduced myself and everything. She says, she's right there in the bedroom. I go in the bedroom, and this chick is sitting on the floor playing a video game a football video game and I was like holy cow this this might be the one (laughs) so 22 years later here we are but anyway she was like I would love yeah let's do it let's go to let's go to Lambo let's check it out so we go up there 2003 and we watch the Packers and the Bears at Lambeau Field and I'm telling you from that day forward 
Um, it was just I was I was struck on him. I was I was completely hooked. So when when we rolled up there, I remember thinking this was going to be this just a stadium setting up there because I always heard that. But the Lambeau Field atrium had been uh, created not too long after that, right? Or not? I'm sorry, shortly before that. So I got to see it in 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 its glory, right? You know that you had all the the restaurants and the shops and everything, Packer Pro Shop right there. It was just a really cool experience. At the time, they had Curly's Pub upstairs, which was an awesome, awesome restaurant, sports bar with an arcade and stuff. It was really cool. But uh, anyway, all of that, I, I mentioned that. I don't mean to be long-winded, but I mentioned that because Bob Harlan was responsible for casting that vision. As you guys know now, when you look around the league, that's what all the teams are doing. Dallas has now done it with the star, right? They, where they could churn in money year-round. <clears throat> the Patriots have done it with Patriot Place. And all of these teams are now beginning to do this. It sounds like Buffalo's now going to do it. And it, it just creates uh, revenue year-round, and it really makes the franchise itself way healthier from a financial standpoint. So he was also responsible for launching the four-stock sale in team history in 1997, a mechanism which raised more than $20 million and brought more than 100,000 new shareholders to the organization. He was. This is probably his, his greatest accomplishment right here, guys. He was responsible for hiring Ron Wolfe, who obviously traded for Brett Favre and also signed free agent Reggie Watt and began the chain of events that led to a world championship. Bob Harlan was the guy who hired Ron Wolfe. If you guys don't know, Ron Wolfe had a long history uh, in the league, working his way up through the ranks. He spent a lot of time in Oakland out there with Al Davis. Just a great, great football mind. And, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's the guy that was responsible for putting together the organization from the ground up for that 19, you know, the, the decade of the 90s run and even into the 2000s, obviously. You know, I kind of credit Bob Harlan with this most recent Super Bowl there in 2010 because – you know, Mark Murphy took over, and, and the foundation was already laid into place. And don't get me wrong, Mark Murphy has done an excellent job. But I don't really give Mark Murphy credit for that Super Bowl. It more falls on Bob Harlan, in my opinion. So kind of responsible for two Super Bowls for the Green Bay Packers, Bob Harlan was, especially coming off of such a long time from the 70s and 80s when the Packers were just so bad, right? So it says, uh, on May 26, 2007, the Packers announced that John Jones will be taking an indefinite leave of absence absence only days before Jones was scheduled to succeed Harlan as the new CEO of the organization. Health concerns were the major reason cited for Jones's departure. In late July 2007, the Packers and Jones officially cut ties and a new search for the Packers president and CEO commenced. Harlan retained his position as CEO through, throughout the search. Although the, pres the president position remained vacant, on December 3, 2007, the Green Bay Packers announced Mark H. Murphy, uh, the Northwestern University Athletic Director, as its new president and CEO, effective January 1, 2008. Harlan remained as Chairman Emeritus, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, and served as a goodwill ambassador for the team. So not only did he uh, go out and find Mark Murphy to uh, to take over his position, but he, he didn't really kind of rush into that. He, he stayed on board as kind of an advisor to help coach Mark Murphy this and you guys know the last history segment we did a few days ago uh, Mark Murphy talked about that that great Monday night football game against the uh, Washington Redskins uh, the second highest scoring at the time it was the highest scoring Monday night football game in, in the history of the league where he played for the Redskins uh, Mark Murphy did that's the guy 
that obviously as athletic director of Northwestern University that Bob Harlan went out and handpicked for uh, to take over as the new president, pretty much a chairman of the board there to operate as the uh, acting owner for the Green Bay Packers. It says Bob Harlan was inducted into the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame on July 17, 2004. Harlan was also elected to the Wisconsin Athletic Hall of Fame in 2009. So uh, it says Harlan and his wife Madeline have lived in Green Bay since the early 1960s and are active in the community. The Harlans created the Madeline and Robert Harlan Humanitarian Fund, which provides assistance to cancer, cancer patients who do not have insurance. The inspiration for this fund was Harlan's diag- diagnosis of... Uh, cancer and subsequent treatment in 2003 so i mean the guy has been in green bay since the 1960s i mean that is just awesome he could probably live anywhere in the world and he chooses to live right there in green bay it just shows how much he loves that community how much he loves uh the green bay packers and he obviously we have uh such a debt of gratitude to pay to uh to robert e harlan because without that man there i'm telling you this this organization would not be uh, as strong as it is today, it'd be nowhere near it. I, I really, really believe that. Guys, there was a lot of people that came through the organization as acting president there, um, you know, in the 70s um, and uh, and up until, really until Bob Harlan, they were just swinging and missing. So what a blessing he was to the organization. So I thought it was important. I know that's not as fun of a history segment. You know, it might not be as exciting, but it's really important to outline things like this and 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 make sure that people stay uh fresh on the minds of Packer fans, right? As far as um you know, the people that are, that are responsible for the foundation that's been put in place for the Green Bay Packers. So, we're going to take a quick commercial break and then we're going to get into a Facebook question from a fan. We're going to break down uh some PFF grades and look at some uh, some numbers here a little bit and then we got a little bit of news as we wrap the show up. So, uh, like I said, let's take us a quick commercial break. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Okay, on to our uh, listener question. This is on the Packernet Podcast Facebook page. Guys, if you're not on that page, go search for it, Packernet Podcast. 
um, as a group, a community, and make sure that you get uh, get added into that group because it's an awesome, awesome tool for keeping up with everything that's Packers and Packernet podcast. So um, this is what it says. J.J. Leahy, Clayton Bailey, can we take a deeper look at Mr. Stokes and see where he excelled and where he definitely has room for improvement? I feel most people believe he had a successful rookie season, but how successful was it really? How did he do compared to the first-rounders last year? How did he stack up against Jair's rookie year? I believe Ryan may have covered this to a small degree a bit ago. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we have a few things that we need to unpack here. First of all, let's let's start off by answering the question, uh, the part of the question where it says, um, I feel most people believe he had a successful rookie season, but how successful was it really? How did he do compared to the other first-rounders last year? So I'm just going to kind of look at the cornerbacks for that same draft, okay, for the 2021 NFL draft. And when you sort it by coverage grade on PFF, Eric Stokes comes in third place. In first place is Nate Hobbs at 77.1. Um, and second place, you've got Greg Newsom at 70.6. And then Eric Stokes at 67.1. Okay, so when you look at where they were actually drafted, when we click on Nate Hobbs, he was a fifth-round selection, okay, that was an absolute steal in the draft uh, right there. Just make sure he's got a decent amount of snaps, and it seems as if he does. Greg Newsom, of course, was taken in the first round, pick number 26. Okay, so he's graded slightly higher than Eric Stokes. And Eric Stokes was taken 29th. Okay, so if we go on, um, this guy, Jerry Jacobs, who comes just in behind Stokes, was actually undrafted. And then Patrick Sertain. So that's a pretty good comparison there. Patrick Sertain um, obviously was drafted with the number nine pick in the same draft that Eric Stokes was taken. And Eric Stokes' coverage grade was, uh, you know, one point higher, basically, than Patrick Sertain. So when you look at it from that standpoint, I mean, here you got Asante Samuel Jr., same draft. He was taken in the second round. Um, Asante Samuel Jr.'s coverage grade was a 57.4. So, uh, in my opinion, you know, Eric Stokes was a, a great, great pickup for the Packers. I mean, you're talking about in the entire draft class, it looks as if there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, I believe 17 cornerbacks that were drafted in the same draft, right? And uh, Eric Stokes grades out as the third highest with his coverage grade of 67.1. So now let's move on to the second part of his question, which was um, how did his rookie year stack up against um, Jair Alexander's? Okay, so when you look at Eric Stokes' rookie year um, there last year, his coverage grade was 67.6. Okay, and I mentioned in the coverage grade because we all know the corners in this defense um, do, are not designed to play the run, right? You know, his run defense says 52.2, overall grades a 66.3, so we're really focusing on coverage grade here. Um, a 67.6 was his rookie grade, okay? When you look at Jair Alexander's rookie grade um, in 2018, his coverage grade was 73, okay, which made his overall grade, uh, let's see here if I can find it, um, his overall grade was a 72.4. So let's slick, stick to the coverage grade. So for Jair Alexander's rookie season, 73 was his PFF grade. And for Eric Stokes' it was 66.3. I think that is very, very, uh, very good 
as a rookie. You know, we talked about it, and, and what you were alluding to there, Billy, was where Ryan did an episode and he talked about how he felt like if a if a rookie performed in the 60s, they tend to work out pretty good, you know, in the future. They really do take a step forward. So let's kind of break down Stokes's consistency because to me that's the most important thing when it comes to defense, okay? Um, that's being consistent week in and week out, and that's something that Stokes really struggled with to a certain extent. Week one against New Orleans, um, obviously, he only had two coverage snaps. He graded out 79.3, but it's only two snaps. Um, his, actually, his coverage grade was a 73.8. I'm going to stick to the coverage grade here. So he got a significant play-in-time increase against Detroit in Week 2 where he played right cornerback. Okay, He had 35 coverage snaps, and he graded out a 72.2. That's right there on par with Jair Alexander's rookie season average. Well, here's where the inconsistency kicks in. In Week 3 against the 49ers, he graded out as a 52.9. Week 4 against the Pittsburgh Steelers, he graded out as a 41. Just keep in mind that each one of these I'm reading off, he had a minimum of uh, 30 coverage snaps, but for the most part was over 40 coverage snaps. So these aren't short sample sizes, right? Week 5, he graded out as a 62.2. Week 6, 56.3. Week 7, he really stepped up against Washington and graded out as a 75.7. But then in week 8, he was right back down to 47. Okay, Week 10, he jumped back up to 77.4. Had 49 coverage snaps in that game. That was against Seattle. Had a great game there. Then at Minnesota, there on the road, he played left corner um, at a 30.1 grade. That was... That was easily, hands down, his worst game of the season was against Minnesota, and he graded out with a 30.1. So you're seeing an inconsistent play. The very next week, week 12, uh, L.A., he played left corner in that game, jumped back up to a 70.7, had a great game there. Um, In Chicago for week 14, or against Chicago in week 14 at Lambeau, graded out as a 72. Now here's what's cool. At Baltimore, on the road, week 15, He graded out as an 89.6. That's an elite coverage grade, guys. So hands down, Week 15 against Baltimore was his greatest game. So what I like to do when I see numbers like that really stand out, I like to go back and watch that game on NFL Game Pass or if you can find it on YouTube and kind of watch him the whole game. Watch the All-22 and see exactly what he did well and and, and what he didn't. But 89.6, it doesn't get any better than that as a rookie corner. I mean, that's amazing. Then in Week 16 against Cleveland, a 60.2. Week 17 against Minnesota, a 64.2. Week 18, a 65.1. And again, he averaged out his rookie season at a 67.6. Now, you were asking, what is it that he does so well, right? What is it that, that we feel like is his strength and maybe his weakness, okay? So I went back to the scouting report. I wanted to go see what they said about Eric Stokes coming into the draft. And this is on NFL.com. Um, I couldn't find any information on the draft network. PFF, I couldn't find any scouting reports. So I'm just going to go off of NFL.com. Here are his strengths. A combination of speed, quickness to play inside or outside. So very versatile in that regard. Occasional flashes of of playmaking instincts. He had two interception returns for touchdowns in 2020. Obviously, that goes hand-in-hand with his speed and his athleticism. Um, Said he's poised poised through press release, stands his ground against physical targets, fights back against push-offs at the top of the route, celebrated high school sprint champ. 
He, uh, he can run with mismatch caliber speedsters on crossing routes, hyper twitchy with downhill drive to his target, plays into receivers when phasing downfield, and uh, potential for gunner duties on punt team. Now, I want to go back to that plays into receivers um, when phasing downfield. The thing that I noticed personally, and, and I haven't studied Eric Stokes very closely, but what I remember seeing with Eric Stokes is he only had one interception right last season, his, his rookie year. And the reason being is he really didn't play the ball well. And I'm okay with that if that's the type of corner he is. What I noticed was when they were in man coverage, he played mirror match press man as well as anybody in the league at times. He was one of those guys that I would consider sticky. He really locked his hip. He he stayed stride for stride, hip on hip in man coverage. Now, when it comes to picking the ball off and uh, and playing the ball, right, that's something I really feel like he struggles with. I think that he plays the receiver more than he plays the ball. Now, this is where PFF and, and other scouting reports get kind of tricky because we don't know what the coaches are exactly coaching him up on doing. You know, Matt LaFleur and them aren't going to come out and go, well, yeah, he, had, he didn't have any picks because that's the way we like to play defense, especially in that left cornerback row or that right cornerback row. Or when he's lined up against the number two receiver, we like to, you know, just, just play mirror match press man. Don't worry about playing the ball. Stick, you know, get in their hip pocket, stay there. We don't know what it is they're doing from a coaching standpoint, right? Now, here are his weaknesses. He's got a slim lower body with a lack of play strength. He thinks hands before feet when matching release and breaks. Doesn't fully trust what he sees yet. Mostly right place, right time interceptions. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly what I seen on tape. Was you had a guy that when he did get the pick, he just happened to be at the right place at the right time. It wasn't like he made this incredible play on the ball. It wasn't like he tracked the ball like you've seen Jair do so many times on deep passes and things like that. It was more of he had such good coverage, you turn around and whoop, there it is. Got got a gift, right? <laughs> so that's kind of where his interception came from. Um, it says, takes extra sna- extra steps on lateral transition from shuffle to pedal, tardy gaining playmaking positioning and coverage, below average poise and balance downfield, opponents run through solo tackle tries, and you've kind of seen that. His run tackling, is his run run defense grade was, was pretty low, okay, so he's not the best in run defense. He's likely to be isolated and targeted by run games, and there you go. So, to answer your question, Billy, his strength, in my opinion, is man coverage and maximizing his athleticism. Being able to run with any wide receiver in the game, being able to play mirror match press man to a, to an extent to where it's really his athleticism and just mirroring what the receiver is doing, okay? Now, his weakness, again, is in the running game. I would like to see him beef up a little bit. You see one of the weakness there is slimmer lower body with lack of play strength. I would like to see him put on maybe maybe just five pounds, right? And maybe put it on the lower half of his body to where I really think that that plays a role when it comes to tackling. Some of the best tacklers in the game, you see, they've got tree trunks for legs. I mean, look at Devondre Campbell's lower body, right? And I'm not saying Eric Stokes should be built like a linebacker. Please don't do that. We need the speed more than we need the tackling ability. But I think that's something that if I were to be a fly on the wall with the coaches talking to Eric Stokes in the offseason going here, you know, when they do their exit meetings, right, at the end of the season, here's what I want you to improve on. Here's the target weight I want you coming back at, right? Um, everything from that regard. Um, I think they probably told him, look, why don't we put on just a little bit of muscle and really, really maximize your tackling ability next year. Let's work on tackling. And this is where you get some people that get a little bit off the rocker when they think, okay, Adrian Amos may not be on the roster next year. You'll still have Darnell Savage. Well, we could put Stokes at safety. 
Okay, in my opinion, from everything I've seen from the college scouting report all the way up to what we've seen with the run defense grade last year, there is absolutely no way I would put him at safety. Rasul Douglas, maybe. I don't know. I don't know enough about the guy to, to wonder if he could play safety, if indeed that is an option, seeing that you got three stud. Uh, I don't want to say stud, but you've got three uh, good, solid corners on your team in Rasul Douglas, Eric Stokes, and of course a superstar in Jair Alexander. But I think that you want to play to, to play to their strengths. You know, that's coaching 101 is you want to put players in the in a position to do what it is they do well, right? And uh, the image that Billy Morris actually shared on Facebook along with um, the question, it shows a statistic from PFF where it says the lowest percentage of open targets allowed in 2021 among cornerbacks. Notice that didn't say rookie cornerbacks. In the entire NFL, guys, the lowest percentage of open targets allowed amongst cornerbacks was Eric Stokes and Marshawn Lattimore in New Orleans. So it just shows you exactly what we're talking about in mirror match press man and even using some of those concepts when you're playing zone coverage to really, really stay in that hip pocket. To answer your question, Billy, that is what Eric Stokes does so well. He uses his athleticism to play very, very tight coverage. His weakness, however, is his run defense and also his ability to play the ball. So as we come into training camp and you see these reports come out where we've got reporters there giving live feedback and saying, you know, so-and-so picked the ball off here, so-and-so broke on the ball really well there, um, you know, full contact drill, so-and-so made a tackle from the corner position. Those are the things you're going to want to look at with Eric Stokes is how many times does he pop up in training camp where he's being bragged on, whether it's by the media or his coaches, that he's breaking on the ball, that he's showing ball hawk instincts, right? And also maybe somebody who comes up and helps set the edge from the cornerback position and gets a little more physical in that regard. So there is your uh, your strengths and weaknesses. Like I said, I thought it'd be cool to go back and look at the scouting report from college, right, as he stepped into the NFL draft and see exactly, um, you know, what happened last year in his rookie year and did Eric Stokes kind of play to those strengths and weaknesses. And that scouting report, guys, looks pretty spot on to me. And, again, you know, when you go back to uh, the other part of the question, um, when we looked at, you know, who were, you know, he specifically asked the other first-rounders, last year so let me try to find that real quick i want to sort this by round and see where he came out in that regard okay so we got the list right here and there were actually 38 cornerbacks taken in the 2021 draft so that other number i said earlier was inaccurate i want to correct that but in the 2021 nfl draft the top corners taken the first pick um, the first corner off the board was patrick sertain right out of alabama the second was jc horn the third was Asante Samuel Jr., the fourth was Caleb Farley, and fifth was Stokes. All right, so now let's go back to the numbers that we looked at and see exactly where he fell. Um, let's go, Let's first of all, let's start with Patrick Sertain. Okay, Patrick Sertain came in fifth place with a coverage grade of 66.3. Eric Stokes was roughly one point higher than him. Um, next, we had J.C. Horn that was drafted in the first round. J.C. Horn is not even showing up on the coverage grades here in the top rankings. I don't see him. I want to make sure I'm not overlooking it. Yeah, so he's not even not even showing up there in the coverage rankings. Number three, Asante Samuel Jr. He came in, listen to this, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10th place 
at a 57.4 coverage grade for the LA Chargers. You remember, do you guys remember the buzz around Asante Samuel? Like he was one of those guys that, is it going to be him or is it going to be Patrick Sertain or is it going to be J.C. Horn? I remember that talk specifically. Eric Stokes finishes third at 67.1. Asante Samuel Jr., 57.4. Next was Caleb Farley out of Virginia Tech. Caleb Farley is not even on this short list right here for top coverage grade, so we know he was at least less than a 50 coverage grade. He was drafted above Eric Stokes. Then you have Eric Stokes coming in fifth. So to answer your question there in that regard, Billy, you had one, two, three, four corners taken above Stokes, right? And none of them outperformed Stokes according to PFF coverage grade. So Eric Stokes, the Packers waited and took him as the fifth cornerback in the 2021 NFL draft, and his coverage grade rated out higher than the four taken above him. That's pretty good stuff. Give Goody some credit. Give him a round of applause for that. What's so funny about that, too, is we talked about it in this year's draft with the Quay Walker pick. When they took Stokes, I remember everybody being like, who? I mean, we knew who he was, but it's like, why are they taking him there? It just shows you that that Goody knows what he's doing. I mean, anyone who bashes Brian Gutekunst for his GM you know, approach, like, yeah, I respect everyone's opinion. But the thing that got Goody the job, and a lot of people don't know this, Mark Murphy said when he was making, that was the other thing too about Mark Murphy that we got to give him credit for. You know, we just talked about Bob Harlan, you know, handpicked Mark Murphy to take over for him. Well, Mark Murphy, when he came in, he, you know, when they, when Ted Thompson finally did step down for health reasons and all that, you know, you have Mark Murphy who had several people. Elliot Wolf was in the running. How serious? I don't know. You had Russ Ball, who is our cap guru guy, right? He was in the running for GM. And then you had Brian Gudikins and a number of other players or people that executives they were looking to make general manager. And the thing that Mark Murphy said was he pulled out old scouting reports. This is ingenious, and we need to give Mark Murphy credit for this. His approach was he knew that with the direction that the league was going in and even the history of the Packers, all the way back to Jack Venisi that we talked about pre-Lombardi, that scouting and drafting good players is so important to Green Bay because Green Bay, let's face it, it's not a huge market as far as drawing in free agents, right? And what did Mark Murphy do? He, he went back, it was, it was brilliant, he went back and looked at all of the scout, scouting departments, scouting reports, and said, who had the best scouting reports? And what I mean by that is he went back and said, who had the most hits on these players? Because, you know, you've you got this army of scouts that come in, and the general manager's taking information from everyone, and, you know, not all scouts are going to agree on certain players. So, you know, the GM's got to do the best to read the room and the, and the people that have create, created trust with him and this and that. Brian Gutekunst has come up through that organization, and he stuttered, studied under uh, Ted Thompson for so long, right? And and what Mark Murphy did was he looked at his scouting report and said, hands down, and this is what he said at the presser, he said, this guy, Brian Gutekunst, hands down had the best best track record for most accuracy when uh, looking at their scouting reports, you know, being able to look back hindsight's 2020, and you could see the players that really took off in the league, right? And they really played well. He had the most hit, the highest hit rate on his scouting reports. Lo and behold, you look at the drafts, the draft picks he's made, and he's knocking them out of the park. I mean, Eric Stokes again. He didn't come out his rookie year 
and you know have a superstar performance like a Micah Parsons, right? You know, as Micah Parsons did at linebacker in Dallas. He didn't grade out in the '90s and win Defensive Player of the Year and or, or I'm sorry, you know, Rookie of the Year and all that, right? Um, I think he did win Defensive Player of the Year too. Now that I think about it, but anyway, but what you do have is he he picked out of those top corners, he got the pick right. He picked the best corner. And I think it's just awesome because when you talk about the contract that Eric Stokes is on, and we talked about that, you know, here recently when we broke down the, the contracts of the Green Bay Packers, they're in great shape. Jair's under contract now. Eric Stokes is under contract for the next three years with a fifth-year option. And then you have Rasul Douglas locked up for three years, but which we talked about the way that that contract is structured, excuse me, um, you can really get out of it after one year, and it really makes a lot of sense of getting out of it after two years. I think the cap penalty the third year is only like a million dollars. Now, we'd love to see Rasul stay and play that contract out, and we'd love to see him you know, continue to get better next year, right? We, we, I, I'm not saying that they should cut him loose after one year, but they've got that option the way the contract's struct, uh, structured. And uh, then you've got Eric Stokes performing like this at a, at a you know, a decent decent PFF grade for a rookie, I should say. So I'm really excited about Stokes, Billy. I hope that uh, I hope that answered your question, man. And um, yeah, looking forward, I, I think that we, we need to kind of see Stokes improve those ball hawk skills and also play a little bit better run defense if indeed he's going to be down there next to the line of scrimmage, you know, kind of helping set the edge there on some of that. Because if we are going to do a lot of stunts and twists up front with the uh, with the arrival of Wyatt, if that's the direction they want to go in with Wyatt and Walker as rookies, not that, not that Wyatt's going to get a ton of starting time this year. I hope he does. But it kind of seems like that's what they did really well at Georgia um, with both of those players coming from the same national championship defense there in Georgia. If that's the case and you're going to be doing a lot of stunting and twisting up front, you need your corners to be able to help set that edge against the run a little bit more because it's going to put that defensive line in a little bit vulnerable state if indeed they do get caught on their heels as far as expecting a pass, running a twist or a stunt, and uh, and indeed the offense you know runs the ball if it's part of an RPO or what have you. So hope that answered your question, Billy. Thank you so much for asking it again, dude. It makes for a great speaking speaking topic, and don't don't sit here and pretend like I knew. Uh, all of this information because I didn't. I came away learning a bunch all, all because you uh, you asked that question. And you know, with the main concern being the inconsistencies, I, I want to put a little bit of that to bed, that, that worry to bed uh, for folks because when you look at Jair Alexander's rookie season, he was somewhat inconsistent as well. You know, you only have one grade in the 80s for Eric Stokes. Jair actually had three that year. But what I'm noticing as far as the PFF coverage grades is the fact that um, you know, Stokes had way more 70s grades than Jair. So with Jair, you had a 78.5, a 64.2, a 62.1, then a 82.1, 82.7, 70.7, 80.8. But then he dipped all the way down to 57.8, a 69.5, a 58.3, a 62.1. And then the last two games of the season, guys, a 34.5 and a 42.6. So when we talk about the inconsistencies of Eric Stokes, don't let that alarm you too much. It's obvious a superstar in the making, Jair Alexander, had the same struggles there with with inconsistency. The only thing is you had three really, really elite games that Jair put together as where Stokes only had one. But again, I feel like Stokes was more consistent his rookie year, even though that grade, you know, uh, 
Um, obviously, is a little bit higher there at 73.1. So I wouldn't be too alarmed with that. I'm excited about the future for Stokes. Okay, so like we said, it's kind of a slow news cycle, but we do have some good news to report. Um, Alan Lazard obviously showing up in Green Bay. Um, he tweeted out a picture of him signing a contract right there at 1265 Lombardi Avenue, and he said in the tweet, time to bring the Lombardi back home, uh, hashtag at the top. So immediately everybody shifted to, awesome, Alan Lazard got his contract, he got his contract, and, and it kind of got me excited reading Twitter uh, assuming that maybe they signed him to a long-term deal, right? Maybe a three-year deal as opposed to the one-year tender. But unfortunately, it is just the one-year tender, the second-round tender. But you got to kind of look at the silver lining in that aspect of the contract. You know, what you have with a second-year tender is a one-year deal where Alan Lazard is going to be making this year. Let me try to find it here real quick. Um, contract details. I'm on track here. And it's showing now his uh, his uh, market value at 7.7 million, and the Packers got him at 3.9. That market value seems to have gone down a bit from the last time I looked at it, where it was hovering right around 10. So still, um, you know, we're looking at uh, being three million dollars underneath what Spotrack is saying um, is the true market value for Alan Lazard as far as a yearly salary basis. Now, this is obviously uh, straight straight yearly cash. You know, as Randy Moss said, straight cash, homie, right? <laughs> this is a guaranteed contract, second round tender. Um, no one else in the league thought it would be worth it to uh, to go after Alan Lazard and outbid the Packers because they didn't feel like it would be worth a second round pick. So again, that kind of tells, you know, kind of speaks to the value of Alan Lazard, not trying to put it down, but it is what it is. They don't see him as someone being worthy of a second round pick, which there's not many receivers like that nowadays, right? Um, but his cap hit this year is going to be $3.9 million. He'll be a free agency after this year. He's obviously 27 years old. He'll be turning 28 this offseason. He'll be an unrestricted free agent, so they won't be able to tender him again next year. Um, however, the good thing about Alan Lazard this year in this contract is it's a it's a prove-it year, man. It's a prove-it deal. It's literally he's he's playing for his football life. You've heard me say that so many times about so many players on this team that are under one-year contracts, and this is this right here applies more than anything. He's he's coming into training camp, guys. He's going to be the number one uh, number one wide receiver until someone else proves otherwise, right? And he's got every reason in the world to to perform at the highest level so he can earn a big contract before he gets into his 30s, right? You know, that's the other thing, too, going into free agency at 28 years old. I don't know how many teams are going to be looking to break the bank for a 28-year-old wide receiver, especially with how the market's set right now, okay? So um, I think there's a chance that an extension gets done throughout the season, if indeed the price is right. But nonetheless, Alan Lazard, wide receiver number one, is under contract now, and he is ready for training camp. And I'm really, really excited to see what the Lizard King does this year. I think that he and Aaron Rodgers will have the most chemistry out of all the receivers on the team outside of Randall Cobb. Uh, that's another one, too, guys, that if Randall Cobb stays healthy, I went back and watched that Arizona Cardinals game last year and a couple other games where Randall really performed well. If Randall Cobb stays healthy this year, I would love to see what he and Aaron can do with a full season together without Devontae Adams on the roster. I really, really think uh, he's going to get a lot more opportunities, and I'm really excited to see his protege, Amari Rogers, kind of step into more of a role as well. Because what I've seen of Amari Rogers at limited snaps last year, if you take away the punt return fiasco, you know, the muffin the punt, um, 
and you just look at what he did at the wide receiver position. Guys, I think he only got like 11 snaps, if I remember correctly. And here's what's crazy. He graded out in the 60s. It's a very, very minute amount of snaps, right? It's hard to hard to judge a player on just 11 snaps. But the guy, when I say snaps, I believe that might have been pass-catching snaps, like, you know, uh, where he was in a, in, a, in the pass play, in a, you know, running a route. Um, but him to perform in the 60s, we just talked about Eric Stokes in the 60s. We talk about Jair Alexander. His coverage grade was in the low 70s, but his overall grade was in the 60s. So, um, you know, that's kind of in that ballpark where Ryan and, and I have talked about in the past that when rookies perform their rookie year and they see a significant amount of snaps, and obviously this excludes Amari Rodgers in this specific scenario, but if they perform in the mid to, mid to upper 60s, it's usually a pretty good sign that they're going to be a good ball player. Right, so I'm excited to see what he does as well. But that's the uh, really the only news to report on. Like I said, the, the Packers actually cut Eberle loose. I think that's how you say his name. He's a kicker, and they bring in a kicker um, from Minnesota that they signed off of waivers. They claimed him, so that'll be the new competition for uh, the Green Bay Packers there for uh, Mason Crosby. But I think Mason's spot is pretty well uh, locked in. It's going to take an injury or him really, really struggling in training camp in the preseason for the Packers not to bring him back, especially with the chemistry that they're talking about. He's already creating with Pat O'Donnell, the new punter slash holder that Rich Bisaccia wanted to bring in. Um, it's pretty cool to hear early reports out of there that Mason Crosby is saying that the, uh, the process, you know, the, what's, I can't think of the word that he uses. It's, it's, it's something similar to process, the operation. That's what it is. The operation, meaning the snap, the hold, the kick, everything as a whole, has really, really improved since Pat O'Donnell moved into his basement, literally moved into Mason Crosby's basement. So we've just got a really cool team, and I'm excited about this year. Um, but that's your news. Alan Lazard under contract. He'll be in training camp. I don't think any of us worried about him not signing his contract, his tender, before I believe it's the 16th because he would have forfeited roughly $3 million if he hadn't um, signed it. We knew that wasn't going to happen. So nonetheless, um, you know, it's it's all official now. He's under contract and he will be in training camp. So, uh, yeah, there you go, man. There's your news for the day as well. All right, guys, we're going to end the show right there. I was really hoping to sneak in Sam Holman to get his take on uh, on Eric Stokes and what he's seen on film. But unfortunately, Sam is uh, is actually uh, recording his podcast right now and going to put out the Wisconsin Sports Heroics podcast. So I'm really excited about listening to that. Make sure you guys keep your keep your eyes out for the notification to hit on that so you, to give you some more content here as Ryan Schlipp is away for a bit. But uh, as always, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us. We, uh, we don't take it lightly. You could be anywhere in the world listening to anything and, anything and everything, and you choose to be right here with us, and uh, we really appreciate it. Once again, thanks so much for the listener emails. Uh, appreciate you guys taking the time to send those in. It always makes the show better. Um, if you get a chance today, um, hit your knees and, and thank the good Lord above for Mr. Bob Harlan because, man, he put this team in a great spot, right? And, uh, and so thankful that, uh, you know, for the service that he provided for the Green Bay Packers and, and just putting them in the financial state they're in. I mean, you look at that whole Titletown district, and it's so cool. As I wrap up the show, I want to mention this. It's so cool to see we talked about that stadium sitting up there in the middle of nowhere, right, for so long. And Bob Harlan had the vision to create the atrium and turn it into a year-round tourist destination for sports fans, not just Packer fans, sports fans, right? I remember going to a game and watching them play the uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. And the Philadelphia Eagle fans, there were some of them that actually came all the way from Pennsylvania. And they said, "We, dude, I don't, I don't go to any – I remember this one saying, I don't go to any away games. We go to everything right there at the link. I don't go anywhere else. 
But when they put the Packers on the schedule at Lambeau, I had to come up here and see Lambeau Field. It was just the coolest thing ever. But Bob Harlan had the vision to create that, and then he passed the torch on to Mark Murphy, and now look what Mark Murphy's done with the Titletown District. It's it's absolutely awesome. Packers are in great shape. So uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to the show, guys. We really appreciate it. As always, let's go out and be the change we want to see in the world, and go Pack Go. Keep the change. Roadhouse.